0: Listening to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris.
2: All right, hello, everybody. Welcome to Hour Number Two of the Broadcast. We now return back to what is without a doubt the number one topic. Uh, you always tell me uh, our listeners that this is a topic you want to hear more and more about. And uh, we've done so many big interviews on this. We're excited to have back with us James D. Eugenio. He is the author of a new book called The JFK Assassination. And uh, if you're not familiar with James D. Eugenio, he is the co-founder of two organizations, The Citizens for Truth, about the Kennedy assassination, and the Coalition on Political Assassinations. He's the editor of numerous works on JFK and also on the other uh major assassinations in the 60s including Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and others and he joins us with uh, live tonight from Long Beach, California. Good to have you with us, sir.
3: Hi Jim, how are you doing?
2: I'm great, uh by the way my wife graduated from Long Beach State. And, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love that area. It's a, it's a really great area. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to take that little that little boat across the uh, the bay there to go to Catalina Island. I've never done that.
3: Uh, you know something? I've never done it either. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, if you can believe that, yeah.
2: Yeah, next time I come there, I'm going to do it. We we tried to do it the last time we were in town a couple years ago. My wife had never done it either, So, and she uh-huh. went to college there. I think she has two degrees from, from Long Beach State, her two undergraduate degrees, so I think she was on that campus for six years. So, She doesn't have a good excuse. Uh, I, I'm from Chicago, so I... I have a better excuse that I've never been to Catalina Island. So this new book, it's super. I love this new book. Uh, love the cover design and everything. Now you got the the forward uh, by Oliver Stone here. Tell us the connection um, with Oliver Stone. Of course, he had the the famed JFK movie, which I guess was influenced by Jim Mars writing. Um, tell us your connection with Oliver Stone and and uh, and his thoughts on your book here.
3: Well, my first of all the full title of the book is The JFK Assassination: The Evidence Today. All right, okay. and the reason we put that title on there is because what I did is it's the middle part of the book is a complete updating of all the current evidence in the JFK case. Oliver loved this uh that's why he insisted on doing the foreword, okay, um because he thought it was a wonderful updating Of the stuff he had done back in 1991 back then I did the uh, uh, AV essay on on his um, film the DVD version of JFK so that's how I got to know them know him and then through the years we met a few times all right um, you know at various you know functions and so now we're now we're pretty we're pretty good friends. And Tell so me about. He,
2: go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: And so and so he encouraged me to go ahead and, and put this book out. You know, for, for more for more than one reason. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you read the book, which I'm assuming you did, all right. It's it's really three parts of the book. The first part is on basically about Vincent Bugliosi, okay, and his mammoth 2646 page book reclaiming history which I'm probably one of the less than 10 people in America who actually read the whole thing alright then the second part is a kind of updating um, of all the evidence in the JFK case alright not and by the way and this is something that I want to make this is something the book is not about it's not about drawing what I believe happened in the JFK case. I did that in my other book, Destiny Betrayed. It's about updating the state of the evidence that the Warren Commission used and which Bugliosi adapted, all right, and and showing why it's so, it's more wrong now than it was before. You know, and I don't think it could get very more wrong than that. And then the third part of the book is about Hollywood and you know, and what has happened since j f k came out, and the influence of Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg on their view of what history should be okay and and that that's essentially the three parts of the book
2: now this book it's it's updated and revised edition. I noted one of the comments, and you've got a very high rating. Already, with the book just coming out, it's got uh, I guess almost five stars here on Amazon. But one of the questions was, which one of your prior books is this that that was updated? For those that oh, might okay. have read that this prior
3: book, this book is is originally it was called Reclaiming Parkland,
2: the Parkland book. That's what I thought. Yeah,
3: right. Yeah, yeah. And so and so, they what they did is they they redid the title, redid the artwork. And I readapted uh, about three different chapters in 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 the book. Okay.
2: All right. Now tell us about the the document release. So the last time you were with us, we were talking about what happened in last October when there was the the thousands of pages came out, and people were still kind of pouring over that, trying to figure out what was in there, and but there was still some that didn't come out that were supposed to come out by now Is that correct or have those come out the the remaining
3: okay alright this is, this is what happened and I guess I should um, I guess I should background this a little bit when Oliver's film came out there was such a firestorm about not having all the documents so which was that was the last a subtitle at the end of the at the end of the film that they created something called the ARB the which stands for the assassination record review board so they started declassifying a lot of these classified documents and what happened was that there was a loophole in the law that said that if If certain qualifications are met, that an agency can still keep a document classified for 25 years after the passage of the app, all right? And so a lot of these were. And so what happened then was last October, Trump intimated that he was going to declassify them all. Well, he didn't. So then he said, I'm going to give these guys six more months. All right, so he gave him six more months, which, of course, expired in April. And although he did let go a lot more documents, there is still, and again, this is very hard to figure, and it would take all night to explain why. But the, the best sources I have, there's still about 4,000 documents that are still being withheld, either in part or in full. All right, which I, I guess I should explain that. When a document is being withheld in full, that means you can't see it at all. Nothing. All right. When a document is being withheld in part, that means there are certain what they call redactions in the document. That is, they use the, bl- the, the black ink to paper over certain parts of the document. So there are certain things in the document that you don't know. All right. And so, to my knowledge, there's about 4,000 documents that are still being withheld. All right. So, in other words, what I'm saying then is that here we are, 55 years later, and we still know everything there is to know about the JFK case.
2: 55 years later. But there's nothing here, folks. Move along. There's nothing to see. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be back. So much more to get into. Our special guest, James DiEugenio, the book, The JFK Assassination Forward by Oliver Stone. Grab it on Amazon. You'll love this. We'll be back.
0: Paris Live.
2: All right. We are back. And you can find this book on Amazon. Just type in The JFK Assassination. The subtitle is The Evidence Today, but you could just type in the JFK assassination and it comes right up. And this is one of these books where you'll want to have this in your library if you're a JFK buff like myself. It is 533 pages long, uh, extremely well footnoted, uh, incredible uh, detailed breakdown in the back of the book. Uh, as a fellow writer, I wanted to ask you at some point in this interview, so before I forget, I'll ask you now, uh, James, what is your writing method? Th- this looks like, I mean, do you just have to take a year off from all your other activities and do something like this? This is a mammoth project.
3: That, that, that particular book um, did take quite a while to write. I would say probably a year. Okay, maybe a little bit more, and I consider myself a fast writer, you know. But that that took. Um, and what I do is when I when I'm writing, I this is what I did. I would go ahead and open up a chapter, get the title, all right, and then I would because when you're writing non nonfiction. you've got to consult some source material. So I would just bring all my folders out on that particular topic and then organize the subheads, and then go from there. And and that's how I did it.
2: Are you a Scrivener user like me?
3: What's what's a Scrivener user? Scrivener.
2: Well, that's a uh, a program that a lot of us writers use, which does exactly what you just said as far as creating titles and subtitles and, and source materials and all of that, but it's on a screen. It's on a computer screen. I
3: didn't even know about this. Thanks yeah, for telling
2: me. Yeah, it's called Scrivener, and I don't think I could write without it. Um oh, you'll really? love it. You'll love it. It's I think it's like fifty bucks. You can buy it. Here, any. let
3: me make a note of that. Yeah. Scrivener. Yeah. yeah okay.
2: S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R. And <laughs> I would have okay. I would have been getting so many like nasty comments now when this goes up on YouTube. You should have stuck to the JFK assassination. Stop <laughs> talking about writing. And it's like that's I tell people it's my show. We'll talk about what we want to talk about, but yes, yeah, Scrivener, you'll love it. It's going to help you to get like even, you know, just super organized because I find for myself that if I don't get organized in advance, it gets really hard. But I'm a, I'm like a daily writer where I'll set like a daily goal and Scrivener will run that for you too. So you can say my daily goal is 2000 words and you can have Scrivener will hold you accountable uh, to your writing goal each day. Uh, okay, so thanks put for that. that in there. Yeah, so in any case, um, before we get into uh, Bugliosi and, and, and all of that, I wanted to ask you on these documents that are still being withheld. Do you have any kind of a wild guess or speculation as to what could be in these documents? One thing I have read is that they're waiting for maybe certain people to pass on that could still be alive today that would then make releasing those documents um more palatable and the one name that pops into my head and I'll probably get a lot of you know hate mail about this but uh George Bush the father is still living um <laughs> okay. uh, all right. and,
4: and now let me been a let lot me, of, connect- lot of
2: connections it. to him Answer,
3: yeah. okay all right that is one of the excuses that has been used all right that one of the exceptions in the law was that if there's some kind of an agent in place or an operation that's still ongoing. Then you can plead your case to the president, all right? And then the president decides whether or not the danger to national security outweighs the benefit to openness and transparency. Although, if you ask me, the damage that's been done to this country by the JFK case over the secrecy that the government has used to keep... it's far outweighed any possible danger to the to the national security. Especially when yeah. you find out when you read these documents that there really was no danger to national security. So now, as to your particular question, I, I don't I don't think I've seen anything about Bush in any of the documents that have been declassified so far. Except for there's one. There's there's one document that was kind of interesting. That was a, a memorandum by Hoover, okay, um, saying that um, certain people that were associated with the CIA uh, should be briefed on certain uh, Cuban exiles in the Florida community, which, of course, did two things. It Number one, when Bush... Uh, when it before Congress and was interviewed about becoming CIA director, I think that was in seventy seventy five. Okay, he said he had no prior association with the CIA. Well, this document would seem to undermine that. All right, you know. And secondly, it seemed to indicate that Bush, through some of his business, uh. uh His business possessions in the Caribbean might have been, and probably was, you know, in contact at least with some of these Cuban exile groups, all right? You know, so it's a kind of interesting document, all right? Now, let let me say, let me add one last thing about this whole issue, about what you're bringing up, about what the secrecy of these documents has done to this country. If this case would have ever been reopened, one of the very most important things it could have been reopened on is the medical evidence in the JFK case. Now, you probably don't know this, but because this has taken so long, all three of the autopsy doctors are now dead. Pierre Fink just died about six or seven months ago. Mm. He was the last of them that was still alive. Now I'm sure you know that if you're going to reopen a cold case, you you go before a grand jury, okay, and and uh, you present the reasons that you want to reopen the case, and then they decide on it whether or not to reopen it. And I had always thought that if we were going to ever reopen this case, that it, a lot of the weight of that evidence would be the the, the horrible autopsy that JFK got. But now, all three pathologists are now dead. You know?
2: So uh, as just, time pa- passes, it, it it's almost uh, becoming impossible to do a thorough reinvestigation of this case. Uh,
3: well, at least, let's put it this way, it'd be much more difficult now to get a, a reopening of the case through a Dallas grand jury with all three of those guys passed on. You know, and this is why... Some people believe this has been the whole point, okay The whole point is to let everybody you know pass away all right, then you have nothing to work with at the end of the day, you know
2: yeah, and it just and it seems sure sus- as
3: heck did a good job on that
2: and it sure seems suspicious to me that the that president trump was had seen the documents, said he was releasing all the documents, and even with sort of this uh <laughs> very terrible relationship he now has with a lot of the establishment he still isn't addressing these remaining documents which maybe someone maybe we should get kim kardashian to go to the white house
4: and ask him to release the remaining document
2: that might be more success than you or i all right we'll take a break when we come back we'll talk about uh, vincent bugliosi and we'll talk about the murder of oswald probably the most interesting part of the entire case, in my view. We'll be back. Six, seven, six. All right, we are back. We're talking about the JFK assassination. Our special guest, James Eugenio, the new book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, the foreword by Oliver Stone. And we jump to the dog-eared page that I have right here, page 222, which is the most fascinating part, James, of this entire story. And I love how you describe this here, as, as you talk about Vincent Bugliosi, the murder of Oswald, and you say this: when Oswald was murdered on television, it was perhaps the most shocking live event in American history. You then go on to explain how that is treated. The, that particular element of this whole story is treated both by Bugliosi and the Warren Commission. And it's the the biggest unanswered question for me is why? Why would Ruby? do this i mean what what was his motivation if he had nothing there was no conspiracy he had no prior relationship all of those things which were expected to believe why would he go in there uh, into the police headquarters and kill oswald
3: well that's that that's a heck of a good question and i hope that you uh first of all thank you for liking that part of the book so much because i actually do think that's one of the highlights of the book all right and i ho- i hope you read carefully over the part where i talk about uh ruby's lie detector test because to me that's the whole key to what 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 happened there because um See, Ruby was subjected to a lie detector test by the Warren Commission, and it was sponsored by the FBI. And people like Arlen Specter, people like Earl Warren and all the defenders of the Warren Commission said, well, look, he passed his lie detector test. And in that lie detector test, he said he didn't know Oswald. He had no help getting in the prison, the jail, rather, et cetera. He did it all alone. Okay? Well, it turns out the House Select Committee later on, um, they subjected the lie detector test, or commonly called the polygraph, to a panel, a three-man panel, of three of the best polygraph technicians in America. And they said in this report, about a 16-page report, they said that this lie detector test broke at least 12 specific rules of polygraph technique. And they said one of the things that this guy did is he turned down one of the most sensitive indicators of somebody's lying, which is called GSR, galvanic skin response. This thing is so sensitive It can go ahead and register by machine somebody's blushing, okay, at the time. That's Mm -hmm. how sensitive it is to the skin. And they said he turned this down as the test progressed. All right. Now he's and they said he never had it at the proper volume to begin with. All right. And so they exposed this for the put-up job that it was. All right. They said this lie detector test is actually worthless, and they said what's left of it, which would be the breathing notations. Okay, uh, you know, and and um, there's there was there's one other thing they do. There's breath, the breathing notations, the GSR, and there's one other thing. The other two indicators strongly suggest that. At least in one instance, Ruby was lying when they said they, did, they, when they said words of the effect, "Did you? I think it was. Did you either know Oswald or did you have any role with him in the assassination?" Ruby said no, and they said we think he's lying on that. The other two indicators seem to say that he's lying. So, in other words, in other words, the FBI and see, and this is what I conclude in this. If you know anything about the way the FBI worked at that time, you didn't do anything like that unless it was approved at the top, because Hoover was a dictator, all right. And so, I believe that whoever did that, the guy who did that test, all right, uh, their polygraph technician, you know, he got the word from it, from the top that you're going to rig this thing because the Warren Commission needs it now we can go into all, all these other things about ruby's entry into that
2: that wasn't ruby's like public reasoning that came out later was that he wanted to protect jackie kennedy from the trauma of a trial which you yeah, said in your book he admitted it that is that almost was... humorous for him to say that you know what i mean <laughs> what, like who, who does that it, yeah i'm going to i'm going to go on live television and murder uh, the, and and what a lot of people don't realize is how it, such a short time had passed. Like it, it wasn't it like within hours or the next day that Oswald is dead. I mean, imagine just the, the, I mean, the timeline. It's like JFK is dead, and then, boom, Oswald is dead.
3: Right. And and by the way, he admitted that that was a phony excuse that his uh, lawyer Tom Howard put him up to saying. Okay, you know, so that that was that was more baloney. Okay, now. There's so many ways you can look at you can look at this thing. For example, Ruby appears to be stalking Oswald. He's there that night, the night of the assassination, disguised as a reporter. All right. He's there the next day, his excuses to bring sandwiches to the cops. And there's about five witnesses who say that he was there that morning, Sunday morning. You know. Uh, the Warren Commission would not swallow any of them, okay, even though they were very credible. They couldn't deny the Friday night thing because that was on film, okay? (laughs) You know, all right. So it appears to be that he's stalking, he's stalking Oswald. He's checking it out, seeing when he's there. He has such great relationship with the cops there that he can walk around at, this police station, when they have the most famous prisoner they're, and the biggest case they ever had, you know, with impunity. And nobody ever says, what are you doing here, Jack? All right? Now, another very important point. We went through the lie detector test, of the whole idea of stalking him. The guard, Mr. Vaughn, at the main gate of the uh, of, of the parking ramp, said that no, he did not see Ruby coming down the ramp, the mainstream ramp. All right? And he passed his lie detector test. All right? Patrick Dean, who was in charge of security for the operation, all right, he flunked his lie detector test, even though he was allowed to write his own questions. Okay? (laughs) Okay. All right. And, you know, because the question was, and any and then there's very clearly he lied. He said you could not open the back door. OK, you could not open the back door unless you had a key. Well, the House Select Committee checked that out and they found out they found a custodian crew from 1963. And they said, no, that's not true. You didn't need a key to open a door from the inside. Now, why is that so important? I never realized how important this was until somebody sent me a picture from the back of the police station, you know, going out that door. Right across the street is the Western Union Station that Ruby said he was at before he walked over to the Main Street ramp. In other words, once Oswald was ready to come down, All they needed to do was have a guy at that back door, opens a door, waves a Ruby, comes back right in, in that back door, walks upstairs to the parking lot, and he's right there. And by the way, there's films of this, although Ruby denied that he was hiding in the crowd there. There's a film called Evidence of Revision, and it's on YouTube. Extraordinary...
2: Films. Yeah, I've got, and, I've never and as we go on. to this break, you know, just yeah. I'll make this comment that obviously, you know, Ruby knew he was giving up his life to go in there because you pull out a gun in front of all those police officers. You might right. just get shot before you get your first shot off. I mean, it, for him to be willing to give up his life, And even if he was successful to end up in prison, and you know, all right, we are back. The book is the JFK assassination, the evidence today, forward by Oliver Stone. And you can pick it up on Amazon. It is available in Kindle also. And I also noted, James, that one of the uh, commenters on your Amazon page said they want the audio version. Do you typically do an audio version? Will that be coming sometime later? Yes. Yeah, I I love audio versions, especially like a driving trip or something like that.
3: Right, it's becoming pretty popular.
2: Yeah, I read an article, you know, being a writer myself, I read an article the other day that said that the Kindle sales are sort of dropping off, but what's really the growth right now is the audiobooks. Wow. uh, Yeah, it seems like that's like the new hot market to be in, and what's nice about it is not a lot of authors will do an audiobook and very few will actually read it in their own voice, which I, I love the ones read by the mm. author in particular. So anyway, I wanted to get into in our final segment here uh, this whole matter of Hollywood, uh, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg. Uh, wouldn't it just be more interesting to tell the real story than to seem <laughs> I, I you know what I'm saying? I mean this story is interesting enough. As it is, this is one of those stories where you don't have to change it for it to be super interesting and exciting. Why do they want a monkey with what really the truth is here?
3: Well, you know, I spent a lot of time of that in, in on that issue in the last part of the book, part three. All right. And I did a lot of work on these two guys, you know, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. And I came to the conclusion after reading a lot about them see that these guys began their lives and their careers as kind of outsiders all right and for Spielberg I go I go into the whole thing about um, his 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 all his Jewish background in places like uh, Scottsdale Arizona and Northern California all right. And uh and how he, he kinda grew up kind of small and, and frail and he felt like he got picked on a lot. All right. And then Hanks had a I think his father was divorced three times. All right. And he kind of saved himself by joining this Christian group, uh this fundamental Christian group in high school. And then he got into acting. And so what what I came to the conclusion That these guys began their lives as outsiders, and they wanted to be insiders, okay? And one way they got inside is through the auspices of the Democratic Party. And I begin the whole thing with that bizarre Academy Awards show where you had Michelle Obama on this giant screen giving out an Oscar for Best Picture, and I'm, I'm really surprised that not a lot of people didn't object to that because, you know, that's one thing you should not have is politics influencing art, okay, especially a mass media form like movies. But these guys, that's what they did, and that was their ticket to becoming insiders. And they make films, they make films on that basis, and I discussed three specific ones, In this part of the book, Charlie Wilson's War, Parkland, and The Post, which was the most recent one that came out a few months ago, which was uh, Spielberg and Hanks on the Pentagon Papers, which I thought was just—I had to see it twice because I could not believe what they did to that story, you know. And so that takes up about 20 pages in the last part of the book. You know, and and so, you know, I just don't think that this is good. You know, I I, I just don't think that that's the way you should make films. Like you just said, on something about the Kennedy assassination, you know, what we need is is people who want to tell the truth about that case with the newest information available on that case. You know, we don't need a recycling of the one report these days.
2: Interesting question just coming in here by email. We have some very, very smart listeners. They want you to talk about Marina Oswald Porter, who I understand is still living. I guess she's like in her 70s now. Um, They want to know if she might still have some information to share before her death.
3: Well, okay, Marina Oswald Porter is still alive. From my understanding, she will not go on camera to talk about this case anymore. You know, and as far as any, any last-minute information she might have, um, I, I kind of doubt that she'd be willing to say it right now. One of the things that people would like her to do is to okay the final declassification, and I'm not sure if this has been done yet, of Lee Harvey Oswald's tax forms, which would be interesting, I think. Now, I'm not sure whether... I haven't checked on that lately, but that's something some people... Several of about. our
2: guests have mentioned the tax returns, which I'm a financial guy, and uh, that's fascinating to me that that would be important, and, and, and it is because that could show his income sources, which would right. then confirm whether or not he was actually working for the government during that time.
3: Well, it it may or it may not. You know, some people would say... Come on! Do you really think his handler is going to say, "Yeah, put this money on your tax returns"? You know, so, or, so it I, so, be, well,
2: or it could be, or it could be that he got money, let's say, from a front company, and somebody right. with a little bit of you know tenacity might be able to research that front company and figure out that it really was you know an indirect payment from the government. and He was working for the CIA or whoever. Uh, but that that is uh, th- th- that is interesting that you would think that the that the uh, widow. Would cash in on all this, right? I mean, how many JFK's conferences? Well, she would actually pay did her make some money. Thousands on of dollars to speak and so forth.
3: Yeah, she actually did make some money on this at the beginning. Okay, there were a lot of contributions. Then she was paid by some uh, secret shell company in Hollywood that said they were going to make a movie about her. They didn't make the movie about her, but they still paid her $135,000 in 1964, which would be about close to nine hundred grand today. You know? Marina's a very interesting character for and I don't think we have enough time to go into the whole thing. But I think most of your listeners know that Oswald met her in the Soviet Union. And her father worked for, I think the equivalent of the FBI uh, in the Soviet Union. And she was a member of the young of a youth uh, communist party group. Okay. And then Incredibly, the Russians let both him and her leave at the same time, which is something that almost nobody could find a precedent for.
4: Yeah, you know, that, they,
3: they said that, they always don't. They uh, always leave separately because yeah. you want to be thoroughly debriefed the person that you're going to delay. But they came over at the same time.
2: Yeah, the idea that he could, you know, did he officially when he when he went over there? Was he officially? Did he denounce his citizenship? And then oh, no, he, it, no he,
3: he tried to, but the guy in charge of the American embassy was smart enough not to let him do that. A guy named Snyder.
2: Richard Snyder. Still to be able to come back and bring a Russian wife. And right. A, a lot right. of things just simply don't add up there. One last quick question here, and our time goes so fast when we have you. We've had a lady on a couple of times by the name of Judith very Baker and one of our listeners wants to know she claims to be a former girlfriend of Lee Harvey Oswald she's written I think three books now uh, about you know what she knows they want to know what you think about her and her books if you if you're aware of her
3: yes I I, I'm aware of her and I uh, I don't I don't rather not go into it I'll just say I don't find her story very credible and there's actually an article at my website, which I, I can get the plug now. Okay, it's called kennedysandking.com. Just look up uh, Judith v- Baker on the website, and we have a critical article about... Okay,
2: very, um, very good. Other guests that we've had on the JFK assassination have said the same thing. But mm-hmm. she's a tremendous guest, and her books are very interesting, but it it you know there are a lot of questions <laughs> uh, yeah, but she yeah. she's one that does make the rounds at a lot of the conferences and so forth and uh uh it's interesting having her as a guest because she will make contact with us from like undisclosed locations and we can't know where she is until the very last minute uh she operates in the the shadows <laughs> really does uh, <laughs> even to this day yeah it's it's quite a a dramatic setup when we have her on the show, but uh, people love, you know, hearing your stories. All right. Uh thirty seconds left, sir. So good to have you with us. The new book, I love it. It's a great book. Uh how can people get it? The Amazon, of course. Tell us about your website again.
3: Okay. It's com And if you want to buy the book there, that will link you directly to the publisher. But you can get it, of course, through Barnes and Noble and Amazon. I think it's both in paperback and in Kindle. And there yep. will be an audible version coming out soon
2: very All good right. very good i'm looking forward to that james de eugenio thank you so much for being with us the book the jfk assassination remember if it's sunday night it's jim Paris live we'll talk to you next time
4: Won't. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
1: I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. 10, Nine,
4: eight, seven, six, five, four, three,
0: two, one, fire! You're listening to Jim Paris live. Your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now, your host, the editor in chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris.
2: All right, welcome everybody to hour number two of the broadcast. We've been looking forward to this interview. Tonight, hour number two the entire hour, we will be discussing the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And here's sort of uh, the background on this for those that are not as familiar with the details. On June 5th, 1968, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy was mortally wounded shortly after midnight at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Earlier that evening, the 42-year-old junior senator from New York, was declared the winner in the South Dakota and California presidential primaries in the 1968 election. He was pronounced dead at 1.44 a.m. on June the 6th. Now, that was about 26 hours after he had been shot. And it was the assassination of RFK that prompted what is presently today's Practice of providing secret service protection, not just for a sitting president, but also for presidential candidates. And joining us tonight is Lisa Pease, and she is the author of the book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, the real history of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, based on more than two decades of investigative research. She has recently published the book, which has already been hailed as the magnum opus of RFK assassination research by the acclaimed author of JFK and the unspeakable James Douglas. I should also mention that our prior guest, James D. Eugenio, has uh, contributed to this book by writing the introduction. And Lisa Pease, good to have you with us, ma'am, for the first time on Jim Paris Live Do we have Lisa? All right, uh, Minneapolis, are you there? I do not hear Lisa. Uh Hello. Hello. There we go. All right. Oh, you got me? Yes, I've got you now. All right. Thank you. Good to have you with us tonight, Lisa.
5: Yeah, good to be here. Although I'm very sad at the Rams' loss, but you know, we won't. Spend
2: well, any time. yeah, that's all right. Uh, yeah, it, I, I sort of boycotted the Super Bowl myself tonight. So, but I did hear that at the top of the hour news that the uh, that the uh, Rams lost, and uh, we've got another year of uh, gloating for the Patriots, right? right. <laughs> but In any case, I don't know if you were able to hear my introduction or not. I um, did. I, so, and it was yeah,
5: wonderful.
2: So, well, tell yeah, me, I guess, is, is there anything that I should have added to that or that you would like to add to that, because unfortunately today's young people, especially they don't get the history that, that we all got when we were back in school. And of course the RFK assassination is not as well known historically as the death of his brother, JFK. So anything else about that setting the scene, if you will, for our discussion tonight?
5: Right, right. Well, he, when he ran, um, how do I wanna say it? He was planning to Oh, uh, I'm so sorry, I've got a terrible cold and I'm not thinking as sharply as I usually do. Well, it,
2: what, where we're at on this is we're we're talking about the night where that he was assassinated.
5: Right. Right. So the, like, he was right in the right after he gave his victory speech.
2: Right. He gave a speech, right, and then he's he's leaving the venue and pick it up right there.
5: Right. So he just spoke at the embassy ballroom, which is upstairs at the Ambassador Hotel. He goes off the back of the stage, turns right, heads into a little pantry area en route to the printed press media. And this is something he actually did at all his stops. So it was a pretty safe bet that at some point that night he would probably cross through the pantry. There are a lot of people who think, oh, they changed the route. That's really a, a distraction. It isn't about that.
2: Sooner or later, he was gonna come. So this that. is like the kitchen area that he's going through, sort of a there's back a big, way for oh, him. There's a really,
5: there's a big kitchen area, and then there's a small narrow kind of a staging area. They had these three big steam tables where, you know, plates could be, and the waiters would just, you know, run in and grab the plates and take them to the the guests. It was more like for banquets. It wasn't like... But this
2: was not where the general public was. He was taken sort of backstage, if you will, privately. And there were
5: guards who were supposed to ensure that no one got in there that wasn't a member of either the Kennedy, uh, not the administration, the Kennedy party, or um, a member of the press which is right. something I talk about in my book because there are a few people who are very persistent all night in trying to get press passes, and press passes at an event like that is kind of like an all-access pass at a rock you know, concert or something where that allows you to go anywhere in the hotel. So that would have been really valuable. If you wanted to catch Kennedy somewhere, a press pass or a Kennedy badge, you know, indicating you're part of the Kennedy staff, either of those would have been very valuable.
2: But and it's we'll important that people understand that this was not like he walked out in the front of the hotel. He was right. what would be backstage. Narrow, would you compare this in any way to like the Jack Ruby moment where Jack Ruby sneaks into the police department, which that wasn't necessarily a super secure situation. This sounds like it was pretty secure where he was and it should, should have been safe.
5: Uh, yeah. Very similar in the sense that it was a small, confined space, and interestingly enough, people said that Jack Ruby hid behind the television cameras, so people couldn't really see him because the cameras were on as Oswald was being brought out, and so it had kind of a blinding effect, and there there was at least one witness who thought the gunman was firing from between two cameramen with their lights on, which would be interesting because then it'd be very hard to identify Sirhan. However... There's only one person who said that and usually one witness is not enough to sway me.
2: Now you head just head. said you just said Jack Ruby. Did you mean to say Jack Ruby? You're you're making the comparison?
5: I I, I said you were right to compare it to that in the sense that it's a right. combined area.
2: Now Sirhan Sirhan, it's interesting. This guy is interesting just to read about and all of that, and we'll get into him tonight, but but what was he doing back there? Did he have any legitimate reason to be back there. Did he have a badge? Did he work at all for the hotel? How did he get back in there? Yeah, I actually want to
5: approach the story from a slightly different angle, because if we start with Sirhan, we're not going to get to the heart of the story. Okay. In the sense that I think we have to start with what happened with the ballistics evidence, because I'm convinced, and you know, readers can read about this in my book, because there's no way I can convince somebody of this in a few minutes on a radio show. That's why I wrote a book.
2: Right, right. A very, very large book that uh, lays this all out in a lot of detail. So today is just sort of the teaser.
5: Right, right. Um, So what's important is that after the shooting, so here's the thing. Kennedy walks in, he shakes shakes the hands of the busboy. Sirhan is standing there in front of him. Sirhan pulls out a gun and starts firing at Kennedy. Kennedy throws up his hands and turns and falls and is clearly shot four times from as it turns out, a distance of about an inch, even though all the witnesses who could see both Sirhan and Robert Kennedy put two to three feet between Sirhan's gun muzzle, not even his body, his gun muzzle, and and Kennedy. So we, we have an improbability right there. And as I read the witness interviews, I read one of the earliest witness interviews, and you can even hear the surprise in the police's voice. They're like, he was in front of him, you know, because— they knew that Kennedy had been shot from behind, so how could the shooter have been in front of him? And- well, and how many
2: shots were fired? Wasn't there a question about that as well? Uh, yeah, well,
5: according to the police count, there were eight shots fired because that's what their handgun could hold, and so they kind of jerry-rigged the scene to make that possible, even though there were about twelve known bullet entry points just in the LAPD scenario. I mean, bullets had to enter people and exit people and go into somebody Because else. there were multiple
2: people shot. It, it wasn't just Robert Kennedy. There were multiple, multiple- people shot.
5: And multiple bullets retrieved from them. So there were four. There were four shots in Kennedy, and and two bullets were removed from his
2: body. We'll take a break right here. This is a hard break, Lisa. We'll be back. We'll pick it up right there as we continue our discussion on the RFK assassination. You're listening to Jim Paris Live. Okay, we are back. The book is a lie too big to fail: the real history of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. You can get the book on Amazon. It's available also in Kindle over there at Amazon. And the author, Lisa Pease, is with us tonight. So, Lisa, we were just picking it up there where Robert yes. Kennedy had. Right. He won the nomination, gave his speech. It was late at night. It was pretty late at night, but that's how these midnight. things go. After midnight, he's he's making an exit through a pantry, which is sort of a back way out of the hotel And then we were talking about the ballistics. Multiple people are shot. And this was a small caliber gun as well. It was a 22 caliber handgun, which, you know, uh, I teach for the NRA. So we get a lot of questions from people saying, oh, well, that's not going to really hurt someone at 22. At close range of 22 will kill someone. But it is a smaller caliber handgun. But when you consider that multiple people were shot as well, it seems like your, your case that there were more uh, bullets than what he could have held in that firearm, that's probably right. your greatest evidence that there was more than one shooter.
5: Right, and not only that, but Sirhan was captured after the second or third shot, and, and the person who captured him pushed his hand away from the crowd. So how could five more people have gotten shot? So there, there are a number of problems with that, and the FBI photographed four extra bullet holes in the door frames, I even found video of the door frame that had been pulled off, and it's clear those are bullet holes. Nothing else could pierce three-quarters of an inch wood, you know, leave that tiny a hole, and then stick in and have to be dug out. It just makes sense. You know, people tried to say, oh, people stuck pencils in the wall. Like, but that part of the wall wasn't exposed <laughs> before the assassination. That was only exposed after, and the two holes that we see in the wall were in the, the pride off panel. I put a link to the video in my book because I, I can't remember it, so you
2: have to go look at my book to get the link to that video. Yeah, so yeah, I I know that video was a really uh, critical uh, piece of evidence to st- because if you have a firearm that ha- that can only hold eight rounds, and you can establish there were more than eight rounds fired, either Sirhan Sirhan had a second firearm, which we know he didn't. Or there was another shooter. Now, in your mind, what is the significance for our listeners of there being a conspiracy? Because some people might say, Okay, there was one, there was two, there were three shooters. Now in the JFK assassination, that takes us down a whole different rabbit hole of, you know, who is behind that conspiracy. Does your book Take us down that rabbit hole as well. That if it's not yeah. just Sirhan Sirhan, then this gets into something so big that we don't even we can't even comprehend it.
5: Right. When you start pulling at the threads of this, there are people who seem to be tied to intelligence agencies. That's really the only way to put it. And the whole operation was actually fairly sophisticated, fairly large, and yet leaking like a sieve, which is to be expected. It's funny because people think that when the CIA does an assassination, they use their own staff for it. That's not how it works. They pick a cutout who then hires somebody else who then goes and hires the team of assassins. So they try and keep it, you know, a few steps removed from the agency. And, uh, And the people are not trained like an FBI agent would be trained. They don't go to Quantico and learn how to fire. You know what I mean? They're pulled out of prison. They're drug users. These are you know, people that are vulnerable and like
2: throwaways, people that are throwaways that can be used for something like this in case they get caught. And, you know, you don't want it, uh, you know, you want to have uh, plausible deniability and all that. Is it a fair narrative that RFK, if he were elected, which it looks like he was on his way uh, Mm. to being elected after these two primary wins, is it a fair narrative that this would have been, like the next term of JFK, that he was going to sort of take on all the same enemies, the the um, the the uh, so-called uh, uh, deep state, as we call it today, the CIA, exactly. all of those people. This would have been JFK's revenge.
5: Right, and big business and the whole bit. And not only that, but Robert Kennedy became almost more radical than JFK after his brother's death. You know, he went and he toured the world to try and you know deal with his own grief but then he saw how much worse people had in fact he went to some coal mines in chile uh and he's like wow i understand why they're communists their lives are horrible and it's like at least the communists offer them something you know because the the capitalists aren't offering them anything
2: and And he was he he was more too of a he was much more the face of the prosecution of the mafia as well does your book get into that
5: Yes and no, in the sense that the mafia really wasn't the driver behind this, so I don't spend a lot of time for that. It has been, the mafia has been extremely useful as, shall we say, the false flag sponsor. I'm sure people are familiar with the term, you know, a false flag event is when somebody does something but makes it look like somebody else did it. And the mob makes a great false flag sponsor because, you know, the Kennedys, both of them went after the mob, but especially Robert. And, you know, he called Giancana, you know, he, ridiculed him on tv and said he laughed like a little girl and and these are big guys are used to killing people you know so it's like it's not the kind of bear you want to poke right
2: so now in the sense. in the case in the case of rfk do we have this super long list of potential people behind it like we do with jfk uh, you know that that it was no, sort actually- of like everybody wanted him dead or was it a very narrow list
5: I, I believe it's a very narrow list because I, I've been at it for like 25 years. So it's like I've looked into all these different avenues and was it the mob? Was it this? Was it that? You know, can you link things easier to the mob or can you link him to the CIA? And in fact, you can link him to a man named Robert Mayhew, who the CIA had tapped to run their Castro assassination plot. Now, you have to believe they tapped him to run assassination plots because he had experience running assassination plots. You don't give somebody like that that kind of a job unless he's got prior experience. And uh, I met a man who used to work for the Howard Hughes uh, organization out of Las Vegas. He was one of the few people allowed in the room with Howard Hughes, because anybody who's seen some of those films know that he became kind of a germaphobe over the course of his life and became more and more secluded. Well, this man, John Meyer, did used to get in the room with him. And, uh, And John Meyer also shared an office with Robert Mayhew. And right before the assassination happened, Mayhew asked John Meyer to cancel his trip. Cause Meyer was a friend of Robert Kennedy, and he was going to go you know be there with him on his victory in los angeles and Meyer's like don't go don't go and set up a meeting with Don Nixon, who was john meyer's friend, and Don Nixon was richard nixon 's brother and he's like set up a you know meeting with Don Nixon you know the day after the the primary, which would have been June fifth, which was the day of the assassination if you 're talking from midnight on. And, uh, you know, so Meyer did these things and was puzzled by it. And then after, you know, Kennedy is killed, he's like, oh, my God, did Mayhew know? And he started going back through what he knew, and he heard the name St. Caesar. St. Caesar was the guard who was supposed to be keeping Kennedy safe. That was his job that night. He was stationed at the pantry door where Kennedy came from the backstage into the kitchen. It was his job to escort him safely through. Instead, they get about halfway, Kennedy pulls away from him, you know, shakes the hand, turns to move forward, and next thing we know, Kennedy is shot. Kennedy is shot three times under his right arm, and the man closest to him at that point was St. Eugene Caesar, who worked for Mayhew and the Youth organization.
2: And Interesting, and our break is here denied- when we come... When we come back, I want to ask you about Don Nixon, because that's a name I'm not familiar with. And uh, if uh, Uh there's a connection to President Nixon, we want to hear that, too. We'll, We'll have all that and more after this break. We'll be back. is a lie too big to fail the real history of the assassination of robert f kennedy our guest is lisa Pease, and a little bit of a background here on sirhan sirhan in 1969 he received the death penalty for killing robert f kennedy that death penalty was commuted to a life sentence in 1972 with the possibility of parole He was never paroled. He's presently age 74, and he's incarcerated at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego County, California. And as we were talking before the break, it's your uh, position that it wasn't Sirhan Sirhan that actually fired the shots. His gun fired blanks, according to your theory. Who do you think the real shooters were? Will we not know?
5: I named several people and I named several shooter positions. What I can't say for sure is the shooter on the table was X or the shooter at Kennedy's head was Y. So I give you suspects and I give you shooter positions and, you know, maybe somebody else will be able to further the research and, and connect the dots a little further. I try not to ever go beyond what I can definitively prove, which is,
2: you know. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be careful, they're, they're of course. Yeah, free. some of these people might still be living as well. Now Sirhan Sirhan, interesting uh individual, um has a he has a background that I guess his family was Christian, but has an Arab Palestinian background. Right. And and the more mainstream narrative is that his beef with Robert F. Kennedy was related to the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And he was upset uh, because of some decisions made during uh, JFK's uh, term. And that- in my book, I
5: show how that motive was basically invented by his defense team. Because if you shot somebody and you have no motive of why you shot him, you know, in your mind, there's only two possibilities. It's like I'm either brain damaged or I'm crazy. Because they right. didn't know anything about hypnosis. He didn't believe he had ever been hypnotized. In fact, when his defense team hired hypnotists. He kept saying, Oh, I wasn't, I was just faking, but he followed, you know, all their commands, you know, on you. He when again, you can it's not that you can make people do something against their will, but you can make people do things without their understanding or knowledge that they are being controlled. And now,
2: that's the really He was born he was born on the West Bank. He and his yes. family immigrated and
5: They were middle class. They were middle class, they had a home, you know they had a fairly decent life. The father was an engineer, worked in the water department,
2: you know, just a very normal so he was class age 12, life. though, when he came over here he was he was a young almost almost a, was, almost say, a teenager.: no,
5: Yeah, no, he was and he was younger still when the trauma started because of course you know they were caught in the crossfire of you know what Israel calls the War of Independence and the Arabs call the Nakba. you know it depends on right. whose side you are, what happened
2: but uh he saw his brother i guess killed in in, he had
5: an older brother named munir who was killed right in front of him and he was so distraught about that that when the younger brother was born the mother named it munir in the hopes of you know assuaging his you know his his sorrow and he went to paul he's he's a very kind gentle man i mean from all the accounts that i read the The only thing that ever would animate him would be a discussion of the Israelis and, you know, what they did in Palestine, because that he saw the bombs fall. He saw, you know, people he knew blown up in the street in front of him. He pulled a severed hand out of a well. I mean, he was traumatized in his youth. So it was a handy narrative to say oh you know this guy was so incensed
2: you know i'm sorry to interrupt you because we have only so much we only have six minutes left and i want to i want to get into a little bit more about Sirhan. Sirhan, he's still living and is it my understanding that you you have not spoken to him but uh you have connected indirectly to his family is that right right munir Sirhan is his
5: brother he lives in pasadena i've been in touch with munir munir I, I sent Sirhan my book through the publisher because I guess in California you can't send pu- uh, prisoners books. I didn't realize that. It has to come direct from the publisher and then they rip off the cover to make sure there's no weapons inside. But he's reading it and he's commenting on it and he was very excited that I found a third gun in the case, which again we won't have time to get into, but in the court transcript the the LAPD criminalist holds up a gun and read, and they read the serial number into the record and it does not match the serial number of the Done, taken from Sirhan, and you could argue, "Oh, it's just a typo, it's just a mistake." But you can't believe the hours they spent correcting every typo, every dot. You know, yeah, yeah.
2: On a case like this, you don't make a mistake like that. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't think that was possible.
5: Yeah, I'm thinking when Wolfer told the jury the bullets came from this gun and no other, it had the ring of truth because he was using the wrong gun, and he had fired the bullets from that. You're
2: also, as I understand it, in connection with the Kennedy family. Tell us about that.
5: Yes, I put uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who I met uh, a couple years ago, in touch with Sirhan's lawyer, because. You know, I'm like, do you want to talk to him, I could hook you up. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. So I, I put him in touch with his lawyer. He went down to San Diego because Robert is a really good judge of character. You can imagine people have been talking to him all his life about his, his uncle, his, his father, how much they meant to him. And he's pretty good at spotting the phonies in the crowd and, so I, you know, I asked him right after he met Sirhan. What did you think? And he's like, wow, you know, he was a really sweet man. Yeah. So and he,
2: he actually did meet with Sirhan. Sirhan. He did. He did. Wow, he what an electric moment in history. Him. Was that reported in the news? I don't remember hearing about that. <laughs> it's in my book, <laughs> but no. Uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm talking about like in my lifetime. That uh, could have been like the biggest story that I would have ever heard in my lifetime. That the son of rfk yeah. goes to the prison and meets with his would-be assassin i mean obviously uh, oswald is not living but if jfk's right. son met him went and met oswald i mean why? Wow. Right. W- what a, when did this meeting happen
5: right this happened just a year ago december not this last december but the december before
2: yeah so does yeah. does RFK Jr. have a, a feeling like that there's... Well, he has
5: come forward. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he he um, signed a joint statement with members of the King family and, and a number of researchers, you know, high and, and low across the country. This was like 60 prominent Americans, including people like Daniel Ellsberg, the guy behind the Pentagon Papers, Um, who said, we believe all four of the major assassinations, including Malcolm X, were conspiracies that were never properly investigated. We want all these cases reinvestigated. We want witnesses. Witnesses are dying, and there are people who still know things and won't talk unless they're guaranteed immunity. And we we could conceivably still find the absolute truth and the top sponsors if we act quickly, if we can get congressional approval, and so there is going to be a petition site going up, you know, where people can get involved and ask their Congress people to do this, because time is running out. You know, people are dying every year. and But it's, it's not yet too late. And, and and my point is, of course, it's not yet too late to free through He's been in jail for a crime he was suckered into committing. I mean, he was fooled and tricked on so many levels and programmed in ways he didn't understand. Taken advantage of because of his background.
2: In our and final minute, Lisa, is there any her. information that you think that Sirhan Sirhan could provide to, let's say, yourself? Or I know George Nori has wanted no. to meet with him. Does he have any exculpatory he really, information?
4: He
5: really doesn't remember. I think that's the saddest part. It's like he would love to say, "Oh yeah, I suddenly remember, and I didn't do it," you know. But but he really doesn't remember. So he's always left it to other people to figure out what happened because. He, you know, they uh his current lawyers gave him a hypnotist who sat with him for about sixty hours and unlike when his defense team hypnotized him where they kind of tried to lead the witness, okay, reach for your gun, Sir you know, this other guy just said, What do you see? What's happening? And that's how we developed the narrative that I described in my book.
2: And what so, you're uh, what you're saying sounds far fetched maybe to people that aren't familiar with like right. the M- the MK Ultra project and things that our government it's it's it it's it's documented that we did take people and do this kind of thing to them where we would right. try to control people and, and make them puppets. Right. This was this is not and some sort of science fiction
5: university. Right. University academics will tell you, oh, you can't make somebody you know, participate in a plot against their will. But the CIA people will tell you you can make people participate in a plot without their knowledge again it's a different thing and it's very scary and and people need to be aware and don't let yourself be hypnotized unless it's a trained medical professional for a very specific need and then take somebody with you
2: <laughs> yeah i've never uh, wanted to be cool. hypnotized as a christian i've always felt like you're kind of opening yourself up to something if you get into that whole something hypnotism dark. thing uh 10 seconds 20 seconds left here do you have a website lisa
5: uh, RealHistoryArchives.blogspot.com. People can read that statement, that joint statement I just referred to, and see the action items. When
2: and also is, that uh, video of the right door the is that there? I'm sorry. The video of oh, the door.
5: The video door. of the door is not linked there. Like I said, it is. You know, put note in a link. To my book. It that is, is in I the book
2: though, and stuff. they can find it that way as well. The, the book is a lie too big to fail: the real history of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Lisa Pease has been our guest. Thank you so much for joining us. If it's Sunday night, thank you so much. (laughs) It's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to hour number two of the broadcast. So, to set this up, James R. Hoffa, of course, known by the public as Jimmy Hoffa, was an American labor union leader who served as the president of the Teamsters Union from 1957 until 1971. Then he mysteriously vanished in July of 1975 at the age of 62. The Disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, perhaps one of the most riveting and mysterious unsolved cases in modern American history. And joining us tonight is the author of a book on the case. The book is called I Heard You Paint Houses. It's going to be made into a movie that will be coming out uh, later this year. And uh, joining us is attorney and former prosecutor Charles Brandt. Charles, good to have you with us, sir.
6: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: This book is fascinating, and I'm so glad that it's going to be a movie, because it's one of those books that's got to be a movie. It's just, I mean, the book is incredible, and uh, I have to start by asking you, uh, of course I've read the book, so I know the answer to this, but we want to kind of set this up. Tell us the the title, I Heard You Paint Houses, which uh, it kind of makes people wonder, what in the world does that mean?
6: it means in uh, in mafia talk certain segments of the mafia <clears throat> i heard you kill people the paint is the blood that spatters when you whack a guy
2: okay i and, and then the second the, part of the second the part of that is, it is it,
6: the answer to it is i do my own carpentry work too meaning i get rid of the body wow this was the first conversation that Frank the Irishman Shearer never had with Jimmy Hoffa. As you mentioned, Hoffa became Teamsters' president in 1957, and there were people that had opposed him, and he wanted to get rid of them, and he approached his godfather, Russell Buffalino, the most powerful mafia boss in America at the time, and in fact, the mafia boss that had final script approval of the classic movie The Godfather. Wow. And... Uh, And the producer of the movie, a guy named Al Ruddy, his wife, Wanda Ruddy, was in the audience when I gave a talk once at a writer's conference. And she came up afterwards and said, were you aware that Russell Buffalino had final script approval? And I said, no, I wasn't. (laughs) And she told me that, that that was the case. Wow. So he had no choice, but it could,
2: couldn't be uh, any more uh, any more legitimate of a movie when uh, Buffalino was approving the, the final uh, script. Um, So many things about Jimmy Hoffa that are fascinating. Sort of to prepare for this interview, I rewatched the Hoffa movie that came out in 1992. Um, Did you see that movie? And and what is your uh, thoughts of the portrayal of Jimmy Hoffa by Jack Nicholson in that movie that came out in 92?
6: Well, I'd be happy to give you Frankie Irishman Sheeran's thoughts. Sheeran went from, from doing hits for Hoffa to become... Hoffer's right-hand man, and a staunch ally of Hoffer's in the Teamster labor movement. And uh, he told me that Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Hoffer was right on, that he, he portrayed him beautifully. But the rest of it made no sense, especially the ending.
2: Yeah, it, it was a, a little bit of a confusing movie, but Jimmy Hoffa as a person is really kind of an enigma because you can't really look at the guy. I grew up in a union household. My dad was a union electrician. My dad's brother, my my uncle, was a union electrician. Now, they weren't in the Teamsters, but they were International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. So that whole <laughs> union thing, my grandfather was in the, the union, IBEW. Uh, my, my One of my uncles was Teamster. He was a truck Truck driver. Um, that was every holiday. Everybody gets together. It's all union talking, and, and the what the union is doing, and this and that. And and you know, the unions are a good thing. I, I think that um, in some ways, obviously, uh, what Hoffa did, w- they were good things um, in the beginning. Isn't isn't that right? You would you agree with that?
6: I would agree. I'm glad you saw that. I would agree completely with that. Hoffa's uh, ultimate goal was to be a good president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. If along the way he had to kill some people, he wasn't above that. If along the way he put a few dollars in his own pocket, he wasn't above that. But even that, Frank said, when, when he had cash in his pocket, he was a soft touch. If somebody came up to him and needed something, Hoffa just took it right out of his own pocket and put it, put it in the other guy's pocket
2: and uh, he he had his own set of morals and values and uh as he rose in prominence in the teamsters union uh, you know got to to the point that it did where it was uh, just a power to be reckoned with he got involved with uh, the mafia, and and a lot of it was as it's discussed in your book. Um, you know the the pension uh, of, of the Teamsters Union, and and all of that, and we'll get into that a little bit later um, in in the interview. But tell us how you met Frank the Irishman, Sharon, who this book is is really focused on, and uh, who he was.
6: I'd be happy to. This is a a biography of a very interesting man. Who did a lot of wrong in his life and who suffered as a result of it he he had uh, a strong moral code as a as a child he was raised by a a man who had his father had studied for the priesthood for five years. His mother went to mass every morning and Sharon was raised a very strict Catholic he was also a very big person he was six foot four and weighed two hundred and twenty pounds and he, was, he went into the Army before the war started in 1941, World War II, and he ended up in what was known as, by General Patton as Patton's Killer Division, the division that was to take no prisoners. And uh, Sheeran learned to kill in the Army and took no prisoners at times. He said to me that when your lieutenant said, take this man behind the line for questioning, you did that. But if he said, take this man behind the line for questioning and hurry back, that meant you killed him uh, and you claimed he was trying to escape. And when Sharon got out of the war, uh, he was he had 411 combat days when the average was 80. When, it, when with 200 combat days, you could be uh, removed, but he didn't leave. He, he fought the whole war in Europe. Even after the war was over, he, uh, they kept him longer because the Russian um, soldiers were raping women in uh, Austria, and uh, he was sent to Austria to help protect women in, uh, from being raped by Russian soldiers, and that was uh, October. The war had ended in uh, in May, as we know. So anyway, <clears throat> he got out of the war, came home to America, and was at sea. He... he had spent from 1941 to nineteen late 1945, he had spent as a killing machine, as a soldier, and um, he still wanted to do the right thing when he got back. He got married. He had uh, three daughters. He played uh, football for Shanahan's uh, Catholic football, and he was so huge, you know. Uh, especially in those days people weren't very big compared to how much bigger they are now and uh, one day
2: we'll pick it up right there Charles Uh, that's our break coming up Uh, we're talking about the book I Heard You Paint Houses The Disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa in 1975 all that and more as we continue our discussion and also we'll talk about the movie coming out as well as we return and talk with Charles Brandt we'll be back all right, we're back discussing the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa and this fantastic New York Times bestseller, I Heard You Paint Houses. A couple of other interesting facts about Hoffa. Maybe you, you were uh, uh, too young to remember any of this, folks. If you're listening tonight, maybe uh, you're younger than me. Uh, this was happening when I was a small child. Uh, Hoffa was convicted of jury tampering, attempted bribery, fraud, In 1964, there were two separate trials. He went to prison in 1967, was sentenced to 13 years, but then received a presidential pardon from Richard Nixon in 1971 uh and that's when he was released but he was barred from being part of the uh, teamsters union as part of his uh his pardon agreement but we're back with charles Brandt, author of the book and charles you were just setting the scene uh the central character in your book is frank the irishman sharon and you were talking about he was uh in combat in world war ii he returns uh, he is a trained killer uh, on behalf of the U.S. Army, but he's he's back in in the in the U.S. He's married. Uh, he's trying to uh, sort of reestablish a life as many people did that returned from uh, the bloody World War II and uh, pick it up there and, and tell us uh, the rest of it and how he gets to meet Jimmy Hoffa.
6: Well, he was a truck driver uh, working for Food Fair, a big uh, supermarket concern at the time, especially in the Pennsylvania, upstate New York area. And his rig broke down at a truck stop near Syracuse. And he was trying to get it started. And a a man, an older Italian man, came over to him and asked if he wanted some help. And he, he said yes. And this man turned out to be Russell Buffalino. Now, Russell Buffalino is going to be played in the movie by Joe Pesci. And Russell is the most powerful mafia boss that nobody ever heard of. But the FBI heard of him plenty. And uh, the Commission, mafia commission in New York never did anything of any consequence without going to Russell.
2: To and isn't it any... the case, Charles, that the, the, the real Godfathers were kind of quieter figures than oh, what the totally. movies make them out to be?
6: Totally. And uh, certainly, well, when John Gotti came along, uh, the mafia was already on its way out, thanks to uh, another book I wrote called We're Going to Win This Thing, about the mafia commission case uh, that that put the mafia essentially out of business. You, you just don't hear about them anymore. But at one time, they were extremely powerful. And um, anyway, uh, th- th- they hit it off, Frank and this older Italian man who fixed his his rig for him. And they agreed to meet in Philly at a particular bar. And uh, Sharon went to the bar. I've mentioned that Sharon was a very bright man and very humorous, a very witty Irish wit, twinkle in his eye. My wife said once on the radio, I had to pinch myself to remember that he was a killer after I would leave uh, when we were hanging out with him. And uh, anyway... um, At this bar that he was going to hang out with, uh, hang out with Russell Buffalino at, uh, he could pick up some money. He could go to uh, run errands, go to New Jersey and uh, collect the debt that was owed to somebody. And uh, little by little, he got drawn into that way of life. And at, at one point, he was forced, just as in the Army, he was forced to kill someone. And if he didn't do it, he'd have been killed himself. And the man that he killed, a guy named Whispers DeTulio, uh, was overreaching, and <clears throat> under the mob rules, he deserved it.
2: <clears throat> and anyway, so, man, so uh, he was so so he was drawn into the mob first, and then later introduced to Hoffa. Is that right?
6: Correct. That's exactly right. And what that interestingly what that was about? He had seen the movie on the waterfront. And he felt that he was at least as bad as Marlon Brando in that movie. And he'd like to get into union work. And he mentioned that to Russell Buffalino. Well, in the meantime, Hoffa, who, Russell was Hoffa's godfather. And,
2: uh, (laughs) excuse me. No worries. Take a drink of water if you need it. A a fascinating story. Take a little break there and let me know when you're ready. Uh, Okay, I'll
6: take a little sip.
2: Yeah, the, as, as when I was growing up uh, around the unions and all that in Chicago, they used to call a man like Frank Sheeran, they used to call him muscle. And exactly uh, a lot of the, uh, the union leaders would have a guy or two like this with That's them pretty, pretty much 24 hours.
6: Yeah. And so um, Hoffa asked Russell for some muscle. He needed muscle. He needed muscle, he needed muscle in Detroit. Where his local union was, and he needed muscle in Chicago. And uh, so Sharon was taken by surprise. They were sitting at this uh, hangout, and the phone rang. And in those days, there were no cell phones. And so the, the phone was with no portable phones, you know. The phone was brought over to the table that Frank was sitting at. And uh, Russell said to him, Say hi to your union boss jimmy hoffa and frank was stunned he took the phone from russell and he heard jimmy hoffa utter these famous words i heard you paint houses whereupon Sheeran said i do my own carpentry work too and it, it what it was was a um uh, an employment uh interview hoffa then sent for frank the next day to to come to detroit and from detroit He was given some lessons and (coughs) for his new assignment, and then he was sent to Chicago to do some hits for a gangster named Joey Glimco, who had been with the old Capone gang. That's not his real name. He had a real strong Italian name. I'm Italian, so I can.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Do you think that the Mafia uh, wanted also to keep an eye on Hoffa and maybe having one of their own guys uh, getting close to him was good for that not purpose that, as not, well?
6: Not yet. Now, that that came later, for sure. But at that time, he was strictly uh, there to, to do hits. And Sheeran confessed to me that he did 25 to 30. Wow, but if you go fast forward, yeah, fast forward, they needed to keep an eye on him, and there was friction, and ultimately his uh, his murder. And yeah. um, after Hoppe disappeared, the FBI essentially solved the who done it part in just a matter of a few months. They they put out a memo, not out, but they prepared a memo for their own consumption that um, listed uh, nine suspects. And in truth, eight of them had been involved in the conspiracy to kill Hoffa. uh, But they didn't know what they had done, and they had no evidence. They had no proof. They were just...
2: And was Frank Sheeran one of those nine on the list?
6: Oh, Sheeran and and Buffalino were both on the list.
2: Were both on the list. Uh, And it was interesting, too, to note that uh, despite Hoffa vanishing in 1975... He wasn't declared legally dead until 1982, folks. So there was a number of years there. I think, as our guest Charles Brandt is saying, everybody knew he was dead. It wasn't official until 1982 and still remains to this day an open case uh, in the FBI. We'll get into that and more and how our guest Charles Brandt met Frank Sheeran after this. We'll be back. Right. And the movie is coming out in November and it's going to be on Netflix. And what an incredible cast. We have Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel. Uh, this is going to be a just a classic, classic uh, uh, movie and uh, the book. And Charles Brandt, this is like, I mean, you're going to be remembered forever for this. I mean, this is uh, tell us tell us how you met uh, Frank Sheeran. And how you got this guy to give you his story. I mean, it's almost like you were his priest and he told you all this. I know he passed away in 2003. Uh, Tell us how you got so close to him that he wanted to give you all this information.
6: I'd be happy to. Uh, First of all, I was a homicide investigator in the early 70s and a homicide prosecutor. I was the chief deputy attorney general of the state of Delaware. And when I left to go into private practice, I had four men on death row that I had convicted. Now, they were not executed because of the Supreme Court rulings that, that came about. But uh, I was very well known in my community. And uh, so was Frank Sheeran. It was, the community was Wilmington, Delaware, and Frank Sheeran was our local gangster. He was the guy that we all knew was was a suspect. In fact, he was the prime suspect in Hoffa's murder and disappearance. Uh, The New York Times did a profile of him. Uh, Newsweek did a profile of him. Uh, He was uh, written about in in books on on the topic of Hoffa's disappearance as participating in the uh, murder, although nobody knew what happened. Nobody knew, you know, how was he murdered? There was a gun used. And um, I left the attorney general's office in 1976, to start my own law office, and my uh, emphasis was going to be on medical malpractice. I had a real affinity for uh, medical issues. In the meantime, uh, I had investigated over 52 homicides, either uh, prosecuting, investigating, uh, advising on them. And um, so I had that background in homicide, and I had so many great homicide stories. By then, I was a teacher of interrogation to cops and a teacher of cross-examination to other lawyers. And I decided to put these stories in a book called uh, The Right to Remain Silent. It was a novel. It's fiction, but it's based on homicides that I solved through interrogation. And um, so I get a call one day when I'm working as a medical malpractice lawyer, and my role then was to cross-examine uh, medical experts that the insurance company would hire to prove the defense case, that uh, there was no malpractice here, that sort of thing. And um, so one day I get a phone call, and I knew that Frank Sheeran was in jail. We knew, we knew all about him. He was our gangster. He had gotten 32 years' worth of uh, sentences. They went after all of the suspects the way they went after Al Capone and got Al Capone for tax evasion. They got all of them for something, Tony Giacalone for 20 years, Frank Sheeran for 32 years, and uh, someone else for the same crime would have gotten five years. But they were putting pressure on this short list of suspects. And so I got a call one day from a guy named... uh, Well, he was in Angelo Bruno's uh, Philadelphia family. And Angelo's being played in the movie by Harvey Keitel. And uh, I get a call from this fellow named Franny McDonald uh, to say that Frank Sheeran's health was was starting to fade in prison. He had a a severe arthritic condition. Uh, He was in a wheelchair by then. And they wanted him to get out early on medical grounds, and would I handle that medical legal case? And I did, and I got him out. And he took uh, my, my office and me to lunch at a mafia hangout called Vincennes in Wilmington, Delaware. And uh, he said to me that he was tired of being written about in all the books on Hoffa's disappearance. There were six of them then. And they gave him various uh, roles because they didn't know who did what. But because of leaks, the the memo that I mentioned earlier was leaked to the press. And because of these leaks, and they were law enforcement appropriate, these leaks. They were trying to put pressure on, on these people. And uh, in the leaks, he was listed as a, a participant in the Hoffa hit. And he said to me that while he was in prison, he read my book, The Right to Remain Silent. Now, this is a pro law and order book. Uh, this is a book about murderers that I, that he was then he then went to jail and and ate next to you know that I put put there as I mentioned I bought Well, you got uh, him
2: out of prison, and so I would imagine you're his new best friend now.
6: Well, yeah, he said I got him out. Uh, he was thrilled, of course, and uh, he wanted to tell his own story. He said. He wanted to prove that he had nothing to do with Hopper's disappearance. He read my book in jail, and he liked it a lot, and he wanted me to write it. And so we, we met one day, not long after that, and we spent five hours together. And I typed something up and brought it to him in just about three pages of, of, of treatment, and he turned white. He was surprised that he had given up so much information to me. And, you know, he didn't realize that I was this cross-examiner. That's what I did for a living.
2: You were an expert at getting the truth out of people, but at that point he was still not willing to admit that he was involved in Hoffa's disappearance. No, he was willing. He did. He admitted it. Oh, he did. He came right out and admitted in that first meeting with you. That very first meeting. Wow! He admitted that he was
6: there, but and he was there. He claimed to keep an eye on things for Russell, which means you're guilty of murder. Right there, you're part of the conspiracy. But he didn't admit yet. He gave me eighty uh, percent of what happened to Hoffa, but he didn't admit yet that that he um, was the, was the actual killer. And uh, and I knew I would get it the next time from him. But there was no next time. He read the the, the uh, what he had told me. He said, "You can't, you can't write this." Russell Buffalino's still alive. Billy DeLee is still alive. <laughs> People i would written about. He gave me names. I mean, I took, I took them from
2: him. <laughs> right, right. So so even though he was uh, in the twilight of his life, he was still enjoying being a free man, uh, even though he had all these physical ailments, but he couldn't have that information well, released. We, so we, did we, he we, have we, some we, kind of a, was there a deal with you, like after I die, then you can do what you no, do, or you no. just decided to do that?
6: No, no. I, the deal was I was going to write a story about how he had nothing to do with Hoffa's disappearance. Only in the course of my questioning him, one thing led to the next, to the next, to the next, and the next thing you know, I had eighty percent of what happened to Hoffa. Wow! He wrote it up. He turned to stone. He said, "You can't use this." He took it from me. Of course, it was on a computer. I had it. I still have it. In fact. Um, Bob De Niro wanted a copy of it. I gave it. To <laughs> you know,
2: th- this, sounds to the, uh, to, this sounds very Niro, similar to the this sounds very similar to the Stephen you. Mishaw interview of Ted Bundy uh, when he interviewed him in prison. Um, he he sort of took it from the angle of, well, we know you didn't do any of this, but just theoretically, if you did, what would you have done? And in 100 hours, he got all the details of every crime. And
6: beautiful, but that was I, a beautiful I, job. That was one of the many beautiful jobs that law enforcement and people with a with a knack have done. On uh, there's a, a show tonight on the BTK killer, and he's another one of these guys that uh, was full of remorse and full of uh, was a confession waiting to happen. And that's what what I had with Karen.
2: Yeah, and once you get talking and once you get talking and who who knows what you're gonna say, especially if there's a little bit of liquor involved there, who knows what's gonna come out of someone's mouth. All right, our final segment, you gotta get the book, you gotta see the movie, I heard you paint houses. Charles Brandt is here and we'll be back. All right, we are back. You can pick up your copy of the book over at Amazon. It has almost a 1,000 reviews, and it's very highly rated, and I can personally recommend it. Uh, just fascinating. Page Turner and the movies coming out this fall. The book is I Heard You Paint Houses. Charles Brandt is here. And, Charles, before we get into the actual hit on Hoffa, the house in Detroit, the blood and all of that, I want to digress and ask you, you got to share with our listeners what happened Uh, when you brought up the issue of JFK's assassination with Frank Sheeran. Yes.
6: (laughs) One of the scarier moments of my time with Frank, and this was during that first um, meeting that we had, that five-hour meeting. I asked him, um, one of the things that, that I taught when I taught interrogation was, you want the person talking. You don't want them to stop. You don't want them to to pause and think about what they're saying. You want them to talk about anything. Just get the mouth moving, and the truth will find a way out. In the meantime, I had been raised a a Roman Catholic myself, and so I could appeal to Frank on that basis. But at one point, uh, it, it started to get a little sluggish. He was getting tired. And uh, I needed to, he- to hear him continue to talk. So I asked him a question whose answer I already knew. The question was, why were there so many people involved in this, eight, eight people involved in this? Uh, and Frank said, well, that way, if you go bad, you-, you only know what you did. You don't know what the ones before you and the ones after you did. And I said, well, that makes sense, Frank. Uh, And I'll bet, too, that if you took this hit on your own as a a sole shooter, you'd be disposed of after after the hit. And he said, absolutely. He said, they're not going to have a massacre, but a lone cowboy would be disposable, and he'd be disposed of. And I said very innocently, like Lee Harvey Oswald was disposed of by Jack Ruby. And immediately, he had, a, he had a stunned look on his face. And I moved in and got closer to him. And I said, you know, I've never read a book on that subject, and I hadn't. And I was a schoolteacher when, uh, when Ruby killed Oswald. And to me, that's what that whole case was about, Ruby killing Oswald. And um, would be the key to the solution of, of Dallas. And I said to him that, uh, you know, Ruby uh, had to face the music. Ruby had cops on his payroll. Ruby's job was to get rid of Oswald. And when he didn't, and when his cops didn't do it out on the street, then he had to get into the police station and do it in front of the world. In the meantime, he's waving his his right his right arm is resting on a lazy boy, and with his right hand, he's waving me to be quiet. And then finally, he says, I'm not going anywhere near Dallas. And I, what was that? Neither am I.
2: Yeah, he saw it. which is, uh, no, yeah, yeah, basically uh, <laughs> uh, th- that that said uh, more than you needed it to say. And there's, of course, always been those thoughts of a mafia connection. And exactly what you're saying is what I've always thought, which is, you know, Ruby, uh, who is clearly a, a mob guy, uh, it gets rid of the shooter, Oswald. And that was the way. The mob did things Uh, you get someone, you know, uh, someone that you could call a kook, a patsy, and then you get rid of them after the fact. And that sort of, you know, dries up the trail. But uh, that's that's another fascinating part uh, of this book for the we've got a huge JFK conspiracy audience that is going to love just hearing that part of it. Um, Now, let's fast forward. We've got about six minutes left. We the, the house where the hit took place is actually, I know Eric Sean, I believe it was, of Fox News. Um, actually, the, the Fox News got to the house. I guess they've done uh, investigation into the blood that was found at the house um, and even pulled up the boards. And Frank Sheeran's detailed story of you know that actual house turns out to be the house. What was the DNA evidence that they were able to uncover?
6: I I was involved in that, uh, and, and Frank, uh, after he shot Hoffa in that house, he immediately left it, and the, the body was disposed of in a crematorium. Uh, when uh, Eric Sean with his producer, went to the house, and, and I didn't go in the house with Frank. Uh, we, we did not, he didn't want to, and I didn't push it. I drove him to Detroit. We found the house exactly where he said it was. He described the interior, and I didn't go in. So I wrote the book, and then based on the book, Eric Sean went out there with his producer and went in and saw that the house was described exactly as I had described it in the book. And it clearly was the house. And he then hired a, uh, a forensic specialist who sprays luminol on, uh, on floorboards, and if they glow a kind of bluish glow to them, that's indicative of, of old blood. Uh, the iron in the blood uh, is still there. Now, DNA is another story. Over time, the DNA is going to degrade. And so now you're talking about a hit in 1975, and this was 2003, uh, when... Uh, when uh, Eric Sean went in there. Anyway, they found a, a trail of blood that would match the carrying of the, of the body out the back door. If a, a body bag wasn't used, uh, we, we don't know. Sharon didn't know. So, anyway... That's the story on
2: the blood. I mean, just interestingly enough. I mean, it's like, okay, how many houses have a trail of blood in them? I mean, I, I mean, well, that's exactly right. I, I mean, that's just, I mean, I, I mean, that's corroboration right. to, to the nth degree, uh, uh, right there. Now, now, the the, the part of the story I think that's fascinating is just as complicated as uh, Jimmy Hoffa is as a person. Um, We've got a complicated guy here, too, with Frank Sheeran, because in in one sense, he's sort of like hero-worshipping Hoffa, but then ends up being the killer of Hoffa, which is probably going to confuse a lot of people. Uh, he had no choice, though, isn't that right?
6: Well, he said to me that if, uh, he, if I ever said no to Russell, I'd have been just as dead. Jimmy would have been just as dead, and I'd have gone to Australia with him. Meaning gone down under and been killed. Uh, it's another expression of theirs.
2: <laughs> so he got the order from The Godfather. Expression. He got the order from The Godfather to kill Hoffa. Is there anything oh, in your yeah. book that tells us why the mafia wanted him dead? Did they just didn't want him coming back after he was out of the Union? What was the reason? It, it, was, it, it was a complicated uh, bunch of stuff going
6: on at the time. Uh, There was a uh, a gangster named Tony Provenzano, who was a capo in the Genovese crime family in New York. Fat Tony Salerno uh, family at that time. And he and Hoffa had a feud in prison. Uh, They came to blows. And he was just gunning for Hoffa. And uh, when Hoffa got out of prison and was told that he couldn't run for the union presidency, uh, he said, I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue and get that right. Uh, The the current president, Fitzsimmons, has allowed the mafia to run rampant uh, uh, and and take over the Teamsters. And Hoffa began to say things that were imprudent. One of the techniques, you'll see a lot of techniques in this book for for, uh, interrogation. One of the techniques you use is you ease the, the guilt on the part of the killer by making it clear that Hoffa dug his own grave and that he caused his own death. And he did so. Uh, Sharon would explain, well, he was just puffing. He wasn't going to rat on anyone. But he was making some very imprudent comments um, on the air.
2: He became a loose end, and he became a threat. And what the mob does with people like that is you disappear. So all of these stories about being buried under... But what was a giant stadium and these different uh it he ended up in a if crematorium I may, if i may take
6: take a hold of that one giant stadium one uh at a book signing that i was doing a fella handed me his book and said make this out to bob garrity and i said how do i know that name and he said uh i was the hopper case agent for the fbi he was in charge of the hopper investigation and he wow. said to me um, 10 seconds you
2: know charles I-
6: we always like Sharon Fork, uh, but uh, anyway, you'll have to read the book for the rest. Yeah, we,
2: we ran out of time. Fantastic book. Charles Brand, I Heard You Paint Houses, get yourself a copy. If it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Welcome to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right,
2: hello everybody. Welcome to our second segment with our special guest tonight, Sean Levy. Tell you a little bit about him. Go to Amazon. You've got to check out his Amazon page There are several books he's written. If you're somebody that's interested in entertainment, you're going to love his list of books. He was the writer, I did not realize this, of Rat Pack Confidential, which was that that huge best-selling book about the Rat Pack, which I've got to get that book because I'm super fascinated with that whole era. He has a book out about Paul Newman, uh, Robert De Niro, and others. He's a former movie reviewer. And his latest book is The Castle on Sunset, which is all about – The Chateau Marmont, the hotel where Hollywood's biggest names have stayed for over 90 years. And Sean Levy, welcome to Jim Paris Live for the first time, sir. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to ask you, am I pronouncing your last name correctly?
1: You are. Okay, very good.
2: Because I know I could have gone uh, a couple of different ways with that. And I, I thought I had it right. I listened to a couple of other interviews that you had done. The Chateau Marmont, Um, I'm so interested in this. I guess we start by, tell us when this was built and uh, how it became a a place for the celebrities to go to. Like, take us way back to the very beginning to start with.
1: It opened in 1929 as a 43-unit apartment building in the um, unpaved stretch of Sunset Boulevard that connected Beverly Hills to the city of Los Angeles. Um, it was built by a lawyer who'd never uh, been a hotelier or an apartment owner for that matter. It was uh, designed by his brother-in-law in imitation of a chateau in the Loire Valley of France um, and they opened it six months before the stock market crashed so, after a couple of years of failing to lease it out, they sold it to a man who turned it into a hotel. He happened to be uh, someone who had helped found the movie business in Hollywood, and he had a lot of film connections. So people immediately started showing up at his hotel from the world of film. So since about 1932, it's been a showbiz hotel.
2: And, and in the beginning, you're saying it was on a dirt road, and it yeah. had sort of a rustic vibe to it. it. It it still had that rustic vibe for many years following that. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah. Sunset Boulevard was part of L.A. County, but it wasn't incorporated in, in either Beverly Hills or Los Angeles. West Hollywood didn't exist as a city. So it was a little bit of an outlaw community. There were speakeasies during um, Prohibition. There were casinos and brothels and uh, Clubs where gay men and women met. Um, it, was, it, was a, uh, it was kind of a red light district. And, and the Chateau Marmont stood at the eastern edge. So on the one hand, I'm sorry, on the one hand, it was looking toward the city of Los Angeles. It was a promontory. It was an eight-story building built on a hill with nothing around it. Um, you could see everywhere. On the other hand, you were kind of nowhere, which meant that you didn't have to deal with city cops, city inspectors. Um, It it was in a unique place until it got swallowed up by the whole city.
2: Yeah. And and so even though the city began to form all around it and it was no longer a rural getaway, so to speak, it still sort of kept that vibe. and, And it's interesting in the book, you describe it as not that luxurious of a place historically, like it would not be like staying at the Ritz. The Ritz. This is not the Ritz. This is. sort of a a rustic bohemian type of a vibe to it and that was part of the charm of it people didn't expect it to be the ritz
1: correct you know it wasn't even the beverly hills hotel or the beverly wilshire or the ambassador which were the great showbiz hotels of the time it was built really beautifully but they ran out of money on furnishings so they were hoping to uh, Rent out as apartments these units, and people would bring their own furniture. But that wasn't what happened. So it was furnished very cheaply, and then sort of bric-a-brac. As the depression sunk in, you could get estate sales from people who had lost their fortunes in Beverly Hills. So there, you know, it, it always had this funky decor. Depending on which room you went in, you didn't know what furniture would be there. Whereas most hotels, there's a uniformity to the design. And that appealed to a lot of people. It made them think they were staying in an apartment and not in a hotel. It made them feel like they were in Europe, not in Los Angeles. It, it, It had some real allure for people who had to work in Southern California, usually in the movie business, but they didn't want to, quote, unquote, go Hollywood. They could pretend to be somewhere else when they were inside their unit at the Chateau.
2: And they could stay there. It was like a, a, like an apartment without a lease because each unit was designed as an apartment, as your book points out, and it had a kitchen in it and everything. So you could stay there long term. And many of the stories in your book are about people that did just that. This was not a, a two or three night stay. Some of these people stayed for many months. Isn't that right?
1: Some stayed for years. Nicholas Ray, the director of Rebel Without a Cause, Rented a bungalow um, after after the first owner sold it. Various owners added some outbuildings, so there are about twenty bungalows on the property that are individual units. They're connected like townhomes, but they're they're you know they don't connect in, inside. And uh, the people who rented those could could enter and leave the place without even entering the large hotel. Nicholas Ray, the great director, lived in one of those for six years. Today, wow. those units. For about five grand a night, so uh, no, no one is living like that anymore. But um, no, that was I the went thing. on. I went <laughs> online.
2: I went online, Sean, to uh, one of those apps where you can kind of find deals, and I found like where you could stay there for six hundred bucks or seven hundred bucks, like present day. It, would that be like probably the least expensive room you could find there, even today? Pretty much. Pretty much.
1: That's that's gonna be a room where the bed takes up about ninety percent of the space.
2: And if somebody stays little, there go ahead. No,
1: it'll have a little kitchenette and its own bath, of course, but it's gonna be like a Manhattan studio.
2: Now if somebody stayed there today, like let's say I, I I fly out to LA in a week and I decide to stay there for a few days. Am I likely to run into uh, some famous celebrities, even in today's world? Like, is this a place from the past where the big names stayed, or are they still staying there today?
1: They're still staying there today. In fact, today it's more luxurious, more famous, more expensive, more elite than it has ever been. Um, the current owners have done a brilliant job of giving you the illusion that you're in a luxury hotel from the 40s, 50s, whereas in those days it was sort of more a, a working hotel. Um, so you're in it and everything feels old and luxurious and deluxe, but it's calling back to a golden age that didn't quite take place at that time. Um, and you know, if you just sit in the lobby and read a magazine, you will see celebrities arriving to be interviewed or to check into their rooms or use the restaurant it's a tiny hotel and because it wasn't built as a hotel the public space spaces like the restaurant the bar and the lobby have been squeezed in to to what would have been just normally like the foyer of an apartment building in its time
2: very so interesting they are right there
1: in your face yeah
2: now now my uh, in this my give you a little bit of insight that I'm not like a huge follower of entertainment news, but I follow news as much as anybody else. And my uh, first real memory of the Chateau Marmont was to hear the story of the death of John Belushi. And is, is that what put the Chateau Marmont on the map as far as just the general public's awareness of it?
1: Yes, absolutely. 1982. For that matter, people in Los Angeles really didn't know the place intimately well. It's a landmark and it's visible, but it's not clearly identified by signage. And it wasn't really famous. Even in like 1960, when the hotel was some 30 years old, the Los Angeles Times was identifying it to its readers as a hotel on the Sunset Strip that caters to show business people. It wasn't famous. Belushi's death at a time when the hotel was sort of bohemian and obscure really put it on the map. Um, People started requesting Belushi's bungalow to stay in, uh, even though management had taken great pains to, you know, redecorate it and not make it a tomb or a a shrine. Um, And, and ghoul tours stopped by, you know, the sort of things that take you to true crime scenes Um, and, It just became something that everyone knew about the place. Suddenly, this this kind of obscure, open secret became very well known.
2: Now, yeah, it kind of brings back the memory of the O.J. Simpson house, which got so much traffic even after he left the house, they had to tear the house down and actually put a new house in place. Now, it's interesting because I was reading a little bit about, just to kind of refresh my memory, about the John Belushi death um, that that same day, if, if I'm getting the story right, Robin Williams and Robert De Niro were visitors to his hotel suite there. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, they, they both testified to the grand jury that looked into that eventually uh, led to the conviction of the woman who gave Belushi the fatal uh, oh. a, 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 a injection of heroin and cocaine. Um, they, they both were partying with him. Um, lots of people were. You know, It was kind of an open secret that Belushi was, was using drugs and kind of out of control, but he was a 33-year-old man, and people couldn't really tell him what to do, and the people who were likeliest to tell him what to do were back east in New York. His wife, his partner Dan Aykroyd, his former boss Lord Michaels, they were the people who had real influence over him, and they were trying to get him back to New York at the time that he died.
2: Yeah, and just just so many stories uh, in this book, both present day and going back historically, and I want to get into a few different stories. Uh, tell us about Natalie Wood and James Dean uh, being there for the extended stay uh, with their movie production. I mean, some of these names are just legends, and just to think that you could see them all sitting around the pool working on a script together, I, I just can't even imagine it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Nicholas Ray, the director of and, and creator of Rebel Without a Cause, um, was living at the hotel for six years at the time he made that film. And he used to throw a Sunday afternoon kind of soiree. His bungalow was right by the pool. People would come over, they'd swim, they'd make meals, they'd you know get out the bongos and the reefer because it was the 50s. And they were just these long kind of cool parties, bohemian parties in Hollywood. And during the years that he was developing Rebel Without a Cause, Ray started inviting a lot of teenagers, including kids from Hollywood High, just down Sunset Boulevard, who were looking to be involved in the movie business and in this film in particular. At the same time, he was rehearsing his cast along you know, with these people. So you had James Dean, Jim Backus, Natalie Wood, Sal Mineo, And Ray was sexually involved with Minio and Natalie Wood, Sal Minio and Natalie Wood, at the same time. They were both teenagers. He was a 40-odd-year-old man. It was a crazy scene. Wound up producing, you know, probably the greatest work of art that's associated with Chateau Marmont completely, Rebel Without a Cause. But it's really hard to believe that this was going on in the public places of a of, of a hotel and yeah especially
2: especially in the fifties which um not that I would endorse any of that stuff, but like the sixties right. might have been more appropriately uh, to see that kind of behavior, but the fifties they were definitely you know before their time uh, being that uh, that liberal uh, progressively because that was not even too far from the era where like if a celebrity got divorced, they could lose their, their position with a studio. And that sort of those moral turpitude uh, expectations were still hanging around in the fifties. And yet this was all going on somehow quietly just on the outskirts of Hollywood.
1: Yeah. I don't even know how quietly it was. I mean, it it just wasn't a thing that the people um, you know, in the media reported that people would report to the media. Um, There was, there was a code of, Sort of like boys will be boys and Hollywood people will be Hollywood people, and it wasn't so much like uh, like a conspiracy of silence. It was like just an unspoken thing that no one would talk about this.
2: Yeah, very interesting. And and uh, some of the um, I want to touch on a couple of the more recent stories. Uh, being a financial guy myself, I was fascinated by the story about Lindsay Lohan. Who, of course, we all know, uh, you know, beautiful young lady, talented, but she's had her ups and downs, uh, tragic ups and downs and had a lot of financial problems. And you point out in the book that she stayed there for an extended period of time, ran up an enormous bill like, what was it, $50,000 or something like this, and just didn't know uh, who was going to pay it. Like somebody else was going to pay it, but she didn't have the money and they ended up uh, booting her out because she ran up that big bill.
1: Absolutely true. Every everything you just said. Uh, Twenty twelve, she was there for about two months. Ran up a tab of forty six thousand plus. Um, they sent her an itemized bill. They sent her a letter asking her to leave the premises. Somebody from her entourage or camp or office leaked that document to the press back then, and it's just a portrait of someone someone not paying attention. Someone who you know has has the uh, Privilege of feeling if I fall backwards, someone will catch me. It's it's still kind of shocking to read it all, you know. Uh, six iPhone chargers in eight weeks, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, $3,000 I mean, at the minibar. <laughs> how much at the minibar? In, in a day. Yeah. Three grand at the minibar in one day. In she one day. A wow,
2: what, what a minibar. They must have uh, gold bars in there. Um, you well, know, it yeah. is interesting though. You, you talk about like how the rest of us live, and the celebrities, and just the idea that somebody would run up a forty-six thousand dollar bill and kind of have the thought like someone else is going to come in and take care of this, like my studio, or somebody's going to come in and and pay this bill. I'm not going to have to be worried about this. I'm the kind of guy where I'm on a cruise ship or in a hotel room. I'm checking my total bill every day because I know at the end <laughs> of the trip, I'm going to have to uh, settle up and you never know, you know, how much you're spending until you kind of look at the, you know, the bottom line. And then another bizarre story was Brittany Spears. Again, another beautiful, young, super talented lady that's had problems. Uh, she was eating in the restaurant, if I understand it. And maybe was having some kind of a personal emotional crisis or something and began smearing food all over her face. Is that right?
4: That's,
1: that's the story. Yes. She was asked to leave the restaurant in 2007, I believe. Um, And you know, the other diners, it's a very tiny place, you know, 63 rooms in the whole hotel the restaurant itself is not much bigger than any restaurant might be in your community. You know, it's it's not some, you know, gigantic resort. Um, and it's intimate. And if you're sitting there at the table next to somebody who's behaving in a way that if you were in a Waffle House or a Burger King, they would ask you to leave. You know, um, the the poor young woman was, was suffering some sort of mental crisis. Um, and it was unfortunately in this public place. But that, that tells you that there are limits. It's not like a, a free-for-all there. You have to pay your bill, and you have to behave in a way that's discreet to yourself. You're consenting. You're an adult. You go in your room. You do what you want. You pay your bill. Nobody at this hotel, or for that matter, most luxury hotels, is going to interfere with that.
2: Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it still is a hotel, and it still is a business, Nonetheless, um, one of our listeners is emailing asking, what is the security like there? I don't want to give away anything like, you know, to endanger anybody. So let's not do that. But like, is it really strict security if you were like in there and let's say George Clooney walks in and you say, hello, Mr. Clooney, can I have your autograph? Would you be thrown out on the curb for approaching somebody like that?
1: No, I mean you may be made to feel uncomfortable, which I think is probably a little bit appropriate. It's, it's as I say, it's a tiny, intimate place. But I think if, you, if, if you're if you're decorous, if you're polite, um, you may be told no, I'm sorry, and then you need to accept that. But there are limits about say live, you know, sharing on Facebook live if George Clooney was eating with his wife. I'm sure okay. that some from the staff would come over and ask you to stop and or leave. Um, right.
2: Because yeah. as much money as these paparazzis get paid for these pictures they get, you think they'd all be renting rooms there, <laughs> have their lenses pointed that's, out the door down the yeah, hallway. Not as
1: 600 bucks a night, you know, that's a gamble. <laughs>
2: it is. It may I, not be I a $600 bet. story. <laughs> now, now tell me uh, in terms of, of any other sort of dark things that have happened there. Of course, we, we just talked about John Belushi. Is, were there any other famous crimes, deaths, or anything sort of dark like that that happened that maybe would be less known by the public than the Belushi story?
1: Um, you know, surprisingly few. Uh, there, for sure there was one other suicide. There was a suicide a, a fellow who was a songwriter and screenwriter who'd kind of come to the end of his, his rope in the 1950s. And I'm not going to be able to pull his name off the top of my head, unfortunately. What was interesting to me was that at the time, it was the, the, the newspaper reports, which were pretty small, just, just gave the address of the hotel. He was staying at the hotel, but the hotel was so unknown in the 50s that saying Chateau Marmont and then giving the address would have been pointless. People didn't know what Chateau Marmont was, so they just gave an address on Sunset Boulevard in the Los Angeles Times. Um, it, was, it was an obscure place, and that's where this fellow went to uh, put an end to his, his suffering.
2: Other big names, Marilyn Monroe is mentioned in your book. Talk about Marilyn.
1: She was there on and off you know, a couple of times, nothing, nothing super sensational. There's a funny, funny yarn about a time magazine reporter talking to her in the sitting room of her suite. And she says sort of absently, can we continue this conversation in the bedroom? And you know, <laughs> his, his heart goes into his throat and he follows her in there and she lays at the bed on the bed and points to a chair and, she just wants to lay down. She's feeling tired. She'll continue Right. She wasn't
2: propositioning him. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's but, classic. You
1: know, was, that, that was the thing about the place. It made people feel like they were at home. You know, many journalists have gone to hotel rooms to interview celebrities, but they're very starchy environments usually. Chateau Marmont was a place where people made their own scrambled eggs in the morning and their own coffee. It, it, it felt homey to people. It's why they kept coming back.
2: One of our listeners wants to know, did the hotel cooperate with you on this book? Is it sort of their plan now to kind of have a lower profile because they had a lower profile, but not so much anymore? And maybe this book will make it an even higher profile. Does does the hotel mind all these stories being compiled and going out there? It seems like this might be the first major book about the hotel.
1: There, there was a book written in the '80s by the then owner of the hotel, and it was um, it was a good thing for me to use as research because back then, the, obviously owning the hotel, he had access to everyone and everything, including many people who were familiar with it from 30 and 40 years earlier. Um, the current ownership are much more brand-oriented and image-oriented, and I don't think they appreciate not being able to control their story, but it's this is an affectionate portrait of their hotel, and um, there are very few things in it that, that could be construed as invasion of privacy uh, about anyone who works there today, anyone who's staying there. It's, it's it's a serious work of journalism and history that happens to be filled with dishy stories, but these are things that happened. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, I, I think they'd rather that their, their name and their brand and their image be 100% under their control, but they're only owning a legacy for a little while. There are generations before them who've owned and you know, altered the place significantly. There are generations to come. And this, this story is just capturing a bunch of Hollywood history and a bunch of Los Angeles history in one place. It's not really an expose.
2: So many big names in here, Groucho Marx, Dean Martin, Paul Newman. Um, If, if somebody read this book uh, other than the names we've already mentioned tonight, who would, who would have some of the larger stories uh, in the book that had a bigger footprint in your book? What are some of the names that uh, maybe you share with us a couple more anecdotes uh, of a couple of the folks that, Uh, might have had, you know, bigger roles in your book in terms of of the information you were able to get about them.
1: Sure. Um, Roman Polanski stayed there twice at very um, different different parts of his life. He was first there in the 1960s with his wife, Sharon Tate. And they were kind of a beautiful couple of the time. They used to throw a Sunday afternoon brunch that a lot of their friends who were staying in the hotel or from around... The, the movie business would would attend, and um, when she got pregnant, she told him that she did not want to bring a baby home to a hotel, and thus they rented the house where they were. She was murdered by Charles Manson's followers, wow. who were looking for someone else entirely. She just happened to be renting the house. Uh, they were looking for the previous tenant. Um, So ironically, you know, Chateau Marmont was part of the tragedy in Polanski's life. Um, Eight years later, when he had pled guilty to sexual assault on a minor girl, he was uh, staying at Chateau Marmont as his final residence in the United States when he learned that um, the judge who had agreed to a plea bargain was going to void the agreement and sentence him, you know, uh, differently than they had agreed to. Um, and that's the place from which he fled the United States, um, which is now what forty years ago. So, it, you know, there's somebody who so much history
2: there. Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah, yeah. It, I, it's like any it's any weird. one of
2: these stories, any one of these stories, you just can launch into. I mean, so much incredible history. Uh, how about one more? G- give us one more before we run out of time. Uh, N- Natalie okay, Wood sure. was, was she was she there only as a result of? Uh, Uh, James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause, or was she there with Robert Wagner in in that stage of her life as well?
1: No, no, I don't believe so. Um, So That was just the early days. Yeah. Once you're a resident of Los Angeles, unless you're living there, you don't visit, you know, you don't stay there. Um, Jim Morrison of The Doors, the rock and roll era, had sort of worn out his welcome at all the hotels on Sunset Boulevard, and he arrived at Chateau Marmont, and uh, he had this very druggy bohemian scene going on in his bungalow, and he nearly killed himself doing a stunt. Um, he liked to, to do what he called his Tarzan bit. And he would be in one upstairs window and grab a drain pipe or a lamp and go swing into another upstairs window. <laughs> and, uh he was on a second story of his bungalow at Chateau Marmont, and he pulled off this stunt, and he slipped. Um, and he banged off the first floor roof, like the roof over the doorway, and then he hit the ground. So he was lucky. He, he, you know, the, the first roof broke his fall, and he was limping around a bit after that, and it was soon before he moved to France and, and died.
2: And he was, uh, was that his last night there? <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: you know, I mean, he didn't. He didn't muss and fuss. He just went inside. There was, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was just part of the something. part of the scene. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. So if you're a if you're a student of history, if you're fascinated with history, folks, or entertainment, or both, it's a beautiful book. It's a hardcover book, and uh, it is very lengthy, very well footnoted, nearly 400 pages, including a nice section in the center with some beautiful pictures and uh, very, very well done. I, I'll tell you in reading segments of the book, I almost feel transported to the moment, which is what I always tell writers. I'm a writer. If you can take me to that place, if you can take me to that time, you did it. And you really did a great job on this. Uh, the book is castle on sunset. It is available on amazon.com and Sean Levy. Do you have a website or anything else you'd like to uh, leave with our listeners tonight?
1: Uh, SeanLevy.com. There's information about my other books and some writing and photos um, and about some of my other writing and projects. So, sure. SeanLevy.com. Very good. So,
2: it's, it, it's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, last name Levy, L-E-V-Y. So, would that be SeanLevy.com? Correct. Correct seanlevy.com and of course there's a big amazon page about him if you go there and you can just google castle on sunset you'll find it available everywhere sean levy thank you so much fascinating interview and we wish you the best with the book and we hope you'll come back again
1: oh happily thanks so much for your time and interest
2: thank you very much wow what a great book and i i loved the uh the story about jim belushi it just gives me chills and uh, the pictures in this book, it, it, this place almost looks haunted to me. It's just kind of got an interesting vibe. My wife, who is from California, uh, was not even aware where this place is. And so maybe I'll stay there some night. And that would be a cool kind of YouTube video, right, for me to kind of show you what my room looks like and maybe walk around <laughs> and get kicked out by stalking some famous people. I do, by the way, love to stalk famous people. I am a spotter of famous people. So I would do well, uh, as a guest at the, uh, Chateau Marmont. All right, folks, thank you so much for joining us. Remember if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris live. We'll talk to you next time.